So welcome to 15 Minutes on Health Inequalities and a special podcast related to COVID-19, um, looking at how population health is prioritised during a pandemic versus during normal quote unquote times. So I'm Anna Pierce. I'm a research fellow at the um, MRC CSO Social and Public Health Sciences Unit at the University of Glasgow. And with me, I have... And I'm Lindsay Gray, Senior Investigator Scientist, also at the unit. And today we'll be talking to Ruth Dundas. Ruth, would you like to say a bit about yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Ruth Dundas. I'm a Senior Research Fellow also at the Social and Public Health Sciences Unit. Well, welcome, Ruth, and um, thank you, everybody, for joining us. So, Ruth, could you um, start off by telling us a little bit about your research and um, specifically the, the, the research you'll be talking to us about today? Yeah, I've got a um, long-standing research interest in the social determinants of health and the need for upstream solutions to tackle the problem and to reduce health inequalities. Although I'm not an infectious disease epidemiologist and not even a lay one on Twitter, I was struck by the response from governments in the UK and also around the world to really immediately address the impact that COVID-19 might have on populations' health. While for the last 40 years or so, very little has been done to tackle health inequalities. And as well as contrasting responses to the two diseases, we set about contrasting the projected deaths from COVID-19 with deaths from socially patterned causes. And these were suicide, drug poisoning and health inequalities. Yeah, so you said you contrasted government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic and health inequalities. So how do they contrast? Well, first of all, let me say that I don't think the response to the pandemic is wrong. The point is the response to health inequalities has really been woeful. So I had a commentary piece and that shows how the responses differ across many domains. So in terms of timeliness, the volume of evidence that was used, the statements of response, the quality of the evidence, the language that's used. And the response to COVID was pretty immediate, um, despite what people might say. The UK government immediately issued advice about travelling to Wuhan and China. Um, in contrast, for health inequalities, the Black Report came out in 1980. That was followed by the Aitchison Report in 1998. And then there was a piece of research done five years after um, that, showing that there was limited implementation of any policies to tackle health inequalities. So really 23 years after the Black Report was published, we had limited policies. But one day after the outbreak was reported, policies were adopted. In terms of the language used and the personnel involved, that highlights another contrast. So we had the COBRA committee as convened. All the relevant people in government meet to decide the next steps. The daily briefings from the Prime Minister, the Health Secretary and other leading cabinet ministers. And they are joined by the Chief Medical Officer and the Chief Scientist. And it really seems that all hands are to the pump. And that is really contrast, you know, the government distance themselves from any reports about health inequalities or they make a sort of low key platitudes from their spokespeople. So it's not from them, it's coming from the spokespeople and they talk about levelling up, but there's no action or details. Uh -huh. And why does that matter? Well, I think the implications of this are really important. 
the framing of the arguments by government shape media coverage and that in turn shapes the public thought and opinions. And many of the arguments used for not being able to tackle health inequalities are being implemented now to tackle the COVID-19 pandemic. Health inequalities are a result of the social determinants of health and the unequal distribution of them across the population. And these require upstream, and by that I mean large-scale population-level policies. So we need to involve welfare, education, employment policies. These are the ones that are needed to tackle social determinants of health, which will then make an impact on reducing health inequalities. And we know that reduction in these health inequalities needs a multi-agency approach, but so far this hasn't happened. But almost immediately that was recognised um, for COVID-19, it needed to be able to tackle it properly and appropriately, it needed a multi-agency response. You know, people needed to do physical distancing and they needed to work at home. So for those that can't work at home, the government brought in various schemes to ensure people were compensated, they were still able to you know, have some kind of income. And it does matter because the governments can take a multi-agency approach and they need to, but they choose not to, to tackle health inequalities. Yeah, thanks, Ruth. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about why you decided to take a closer look at deaths due to COVID as compared to suicide, drug poisoning and socioeconomic inequality? So how did this study come about? It was really to put the COVID-19 deaths into the context that we already know about and make contrast with deaths that are caused by these social determinants of health that we know that needs a similar multi-agency response. And these are deaths that occur every year. We're hoping that the COVID problem will just be for one year and will contribute to deaths over a kind of shortish period of time. And we use the modelled um, projected deaths for COVID-19 that came from Imperial College they had two scenarios. We had an unmitigated pandemic where the pandemic was able to just run through the population and a fully mitigated um, scenario where they used all the social distancing policies that we have in place now. And it's really, um, we wanted to do this to try to help decision makers understand the extent of these projected numbers of deaths from COVID-19 in the context of other causes of death. Mm -hmm. And so in relation to other causes of death, what is an inequality-related death? Do you think that there'll be some COVID deaths that might also be attributable to inequality? Um, yeah, to get an inequality-related death, we split all the deaths um, into tenths of deprivation using the index of multiple deprivation for each country of the UK. So we had information from England and Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. And we decided that a fair way to consider inequality was to imagine that everyone should have the opportunity or the death rate of the least deprived tenth of the population. And then we defined inequality related deaths as those deaths in excess of the rate of mortality in this least deprived tenth of the population. And we did that for each of the countries. There will undoubtedly be overlap across the causes. Um, most of the drug poisoning deaths will be due to inequality in that they occur more often in the more deprived tenths of the population. And again, there will be COVID-19 deaths that occur in the more deprived areas. Um, and we used the, because we were using the projected deaths under different scenarios um, from the Imperial College model, they weren't produced by deprivation. Yeah, um, it'd be interesting to be able to follow that up 
um, in the months to come, Ruth. So you've got your work cut out. <laughs> um, so going back to the um, the measure of cumulative green number of deaths um, due to COVID, what were the issues um, in using a measure like that? Well, there are quite a few issues with this reporting of the crude number of deaths. And let's just start with the cumulative reporting part of it. This is a number that will never come down higher or certainly at least as high as the total of the day before. So that tackles the kind of cumulative part of the reporting. The next problem is the crude number of deaths. Crude numbers themselves don't take into account the size of the population. You know, it's not surprising that Glasgow has more cases than the Western Isles. More people live in Glasgow. And also, we don't report other deaths in this way. We don't report other deaths as crude number of deaths, the cumulative number of deaths. So it's kind of difficult to compare the extent of the problem of COVID-19 death. Mm, yeah, I can see that. So what, what approach did you take to overcome these issues? Well, I would say that we used rigorous epidemiologic techniques that we know and love. Um, so we use the projected deaths from COVID-19 and then we can then directly compare these deaths with the causes. So we calculated age standardised rates for the UK and also by the separate UK countries. So that means that we're taking account of the age structure and the size of the population, which overcomes the issue of true numbers. And we also calculated the impact on life expectancy of the different causes of death. So Ruth, using the appropriate techniques that you used, what were the key findings? Okay, so when we're comparing the standardised mortality rates of COVID and the three causes of death, so we had suicide, drug poisoning and inequality related deaths, that shows that the highest mortality rates are for the unmitigated 19, so that's like not doing anything and just letting the COVID-19 um, run through the population. Then the next um, uh, highest mortality rates are for deaths due to inequalities. And then quite a bit lower, about 15% the rate of the inequalities is the fully mitigated COVID um, projected deaths. And in terms of life expectancy, again, the unmitigated COVID-19 epidemic has the biggest impact on life expectancy with almost a six-year reduction in life expectancy. And this compares with three and a half years of deaths um, due to inequalities, sorry, three and a half years of life expectancy for deaths due to inequalities and four months for the fully mitigated um, COVID-19 deaths. So putting this impact of life expectancy another way, over a 10-year period, if there were around six unmitigated pandemics on the scale of the current COVID-19 pandemic, the impact on life expectancy would be less than that of inequalities. So Ruth, I really liked how you've um, presented the, the data. So for example, as you just described, you're comparing the impact of six unmitigated COVID pandemics to a decade of unaddressed inequalities. I think it's really, really powerful. Can you tell us about um, how you arrived at, at this approach? You know, why did you decide to do it that way? Well, we really wanted to contextualise the projected COVID-19 deaths to give some perspective to this half a million deaths from an unmitigated COVID scenario. We tend to think of pandemics like this coming around every 100 years or so. So we had the flu epidemic in 1918 and now we've got this 
in 2020. But we have six unmitigated COVID-19 size epidemics every decade for deaths related to inequality. So it really underscores the issue. And um, could you have taken it further? Could you have looked at whether there are different effects for different groups? So differences in met between men and women, for instance, what, what's the scope for further analysis with this? We were able, or we are able to examine the different effects by sex for the deaths due to drug poisoning, suicide and inequalities. But the Imperial College, Imperial College model that we're using, they only produce results for the overall population and not disaggregated by sex. So we, as I say, we're using the projected COVID-19 deaths, not actual COVID-19 deaths. There is some evidence that men have higher mortality rates than women from COVID. And so there might be implications for the impact on life expectancy for men. As I just said, we use the model deaths, um, but this analysis can obviously be repeated at the end of the epidemic when we really know the true extent of deaths due to COVID-19, but that probably won't be able to be done until this time next year, at least. So watch this space. Um, so, Ruth, for the moment, what are the, um, what are the implications of your findings? Um, to, what are your big messages for policymakers? What we really wanted to highlight is the policy response to any public health challenge should match the mortality risk. In the paper, we've shown that the long-term life expectancy impact of inequalities is substantially greater than even an unmitigated COVID-19 pandemic because the problem of inequalities is ongoing. And at current levels of policy response, it's really not going to diminish soon. And this is the rapid sort of almost immediate policy response to COVID-19 to ensure that we were not going to have an unmitigated COVID-19 scenario of over half a million deaths. It really shows what governments can do and what they should do in the face of a massive population health challenge. Yet the mortality risk from the inequality related deaths compared here contributes many more deaths on all of the metrics than the unmitigated COVID-19 really in only a few years. So I suppose my message is a question. Now that they know the impact of deaths due to inequalities is greater than COVID, what are they going to do about health inequalities? Okay, so when you say policy responses should match the mortality challenge, do you mean that the response to COVID is too great or that the response to inequalities, for example, has not been sufficient? I mean, I did say earlier that I don't think the response to COVID-19 is too great. I think the point is the response to health inequalities is, how did you delicately put it, Lindsay? It's not sufficient. The challenge from health inequalities is at least as important as the COVID-19 challenge, and so it really needs a similar urgency and a seriousness of response. Yeah. And so in your opinion, Ruth, how do you think we've arrived at this point? Hmm. I think it is to do with the kind of different infectiousness, if that's a word, of the two diseases that we're looking at here. So health inequalities have been around for a long time, so there's not the same urgent need to do something immediately. It's not infectious in the same way as COVID-19. And I suppose linked to that is the perception of who captures the disease. So perhaps the more affluent among us see that there's a real risk of them or their family and friends getting COVID-19, but they're unlikely to catch poverty, which can lead to then these deaths and diseases of despair. Okay. So 
just drawing to an end, um, we do like to finish these podcasts by asking what are the implications for health inequalities? Um, I think that should be quite clear by now. Perhaps I could ask instead, what do we as researchers um, and what do policymakers need to do to tackle inequalities? What are the big lessons that can be taken for COVID-19? I think researchers, you know, should start offering interventions or offer to evaluate policies to show which ones really work to reduce inequalities. And policymakers can start to understand that they need to tackle the social determinants of health and not just the end product of health. There, you know, I think there are two big lessons really from the pandemic that we're in. The first is that population health and public health is an issue that everyone needs to take seriously. And the second and probably most more important one is that when a multi-agency upstream approach is necessary, the public can be supportive of that. You know, we are quite supportive of what's happening and what we're being asked to do. And the government as a whole can work together to deliver that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ruth. I think that's a really nice point to, to finish on. So I think we'd just like to finish up by thanking you so much. This has been really fascinating. Um, just to say that details and links about where you can find Ruth's paper and commentary that she's been talking about today um, can be found in the podcast notes, as well as a little bit of information about um, the participants that you've been hearing from today. Um, so thank you everyone for listening and we'll speak to you next time.